So good morning. It's a long time since I've addressed you all at the Women's Bible Study, and it's good to be back. Our subject this morning is the tabernacle, given in Hebrews 9, and we've been learning in our Hebrew study how everything in the Old Testament and all that has gone before has significance. When Moses went up on the mountain, God showed him the heavenly archetypes. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand that there are realities in heaven reflected by shadows on earth. And this also applies to the tabernacle or temple, the earthly sanctuary. The heavenly realities are brought down to us, so we are living now in the age to come, as the author assures us. The tabernacle that God commanded Moses to set up had an explicit pattern for its holy spaces. Its furnishings, its priesthood, the sacrifices, the priests, and and everything else there. All worship regulations followed a pattern. And according to Exodus 25:40, Moses saw the tabernacle. It was shown to him, not given as just verbal instruction but by a vision of the completed article. I'm sorry. I'm dancing that way. Yeah. Okay. He told uh, Moses, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In the first ten verses of our text, the author of Hebrews briefly describes how the tabernacle was set up and what the contents were in what were called the holy places and how the priests served there. The author's Jewish audience would have known all about this first tabernacle of Moses and all about the high priest Aaron, and that's why he didn't go into length about them. But what he wants to highlight is what all this was pointing to, that it was all a parable something to illustrate the real meaning behind all that was given until the time of the new order. And what is the new order? It is the new covenant with the new priesthood, new sanctuary, and new sacrifice, all instituted with the coming of Christ, the Messiah. The old covenant is superseded by the so much better new covenant that Christ issues in with his own sacrifice of blood as our eternal high priest. One of the biggest points of the illustration is that all those sacrifices offered all those years could never perfect the consciousness of the worshipers. They could not cleanse what is wrong on the inside of a person. They could only cleanse externally through the law of the old covenant, even even though the old covenant required them. Jen Wilkins, in her video on the chapter, talks a lot about conscience and a lot about blood. And I really encourage you to listen to it, because I don't really want to repeat all that she has so skillfully brought to our attention. But I will try and add a few observations of my own that have encouraged my Christian walk. The earthly tabernacle that God, that Moses set up, has always intrigued me. God's instructions were very specific for the type of materials chosen, the colors of the fabrics, the purity of the metals used, and the measurements of the actual spaces assigned to the holy places, what are called the holy place and the most holy place, or sometimes called the holy of holies. All of what took place in those spaces, as described in Exodus and in the book of Hebrews and Revelation, were especially interesting to me as a new believer back in the 1970s and as a budding gemologist. 
In the first few verses of our text, the author of Hebrews reminds that the lampstand of hammered gold with its seven lamps that were kept burning every night, and the wooden table made of acacia wood overlaid with gold and on which were placed the consecrated 12 loaves of bread, were the items that occupied the holy place. The golden altar of incense is also mentioned by the author as being there, and perhaps he means the golden censer that the high priest on the Day of Atonement carries into the Holy of Holies, the smaller room that was situated just behind. This room was separated from the larger room of the holy place by a very large curtain or veil, something that perpetually was a perpetual witness that the ordinary worshiper could not have direct intercourse with God. The only item that resided permanently in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, a chest of acacia wood overlaid inside and out with gold, which contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and the stone tablets. Fitting exactly over the top of the Ark was the atonement cover, or the mercy seat, a symbol of the throne of grace, which was a slab of pure gold with two winged figures, the cherubim, made of pure gold standing at either end, and it was over all this that the sin offering was sprinkled by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest would pass through the veil, taking the incense from the holy place along with the blood of the sin offering, and alone, on that day only, would offer a sacrifice for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, as it's put in our Bible. The high priest never entered the Holy of Holies without blood. So why do I say all this would be interesting to me as a gemologist as well as a believer? And there are many reasons, but here I will just mention three. The first is that in the entire setup of the tabernacle, Everything, all the action played out on the temple grounds, coupled with the purity of the metals of the vessels chosen for use, drew attention to the Holy of Holies. The closer one got to the Holy of Holies, the purer and holier things became. The the metal God chose for his furnishings in the tabernacle properly, uh, proper was pure, mostly pure gold pure gold for the Holy of Holies, and gold with pure gold overlay in the antechamber, the holy place. Other metals used were silver for bases that supported the frames of the tabernacle, and then bronze for the bases of the posts around the temple courtyard, as well as the lava, the basin outside the tabernacle, where the priests washed their hands and feet before making a sacrifice. The metals chosen for each use to depend, seem to depend on its proximity to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. And moving from the interior to the exterior of the tabernacle, the purity of the metals chosen suggested diminishing holiness. So a combination of pure gold, which has no alloy, and ordinary gold, which has some natural alloy, probably silver, was also used in the garments of the high priest and the other serving priest. The thing to keep in mind is that everything about the tabernacle's holy places suggested just that, holiness, purity, perfection. 
And everything God is saying to us through all these parables, these shadows, is I am a holy God. And everything I do is to draw you into my holiness, to make you holy as I am holy. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord in Leviticus 11. And one way he demonstrates this idea of holiness is through his selection of the metals and their relative purity. So a second thing that has always intrigued me is that the measurements of the Holy of Holies is a cube. A cube has what is called perfect symmetry. And when I studied gemology and particularly about diamond and found that it had cubic symmetry, perfect symmetry, and that all its planes of symmetries, its, its uh, sides are called faces, uh, gemologists will tell you it has face-to-face relational symmetry. And because diamond is the, is the gem also that gemologists refer to as the ultimate light handler, and diamond is the gem in John's vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, where it is written that the measurements of the holy city is a cube, and that it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And the word jasper is a misidentification for diamond. They didn't know what jasper was then. John goes on to write that the holy city's walls were made of diamond and the city pure gold, and the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. So you can imagine what that picture does to a gemologist's imagination. The point is, the holy of holies of the tabernacle temple was a parable for the holy city, the new Jerusalem where we will spend our eternal life with Christ. This is the heavenly tabernacle, a space filled with Christ, the Lamb's light. And what kind of space is it? It is endless, infinite space. Another feature to realize about a cube is that in mathematically, it can unfold into higher and higher dimensions. In Jamaat... Gemonetry, I can't talk anymore. The Tesseract is a four-dimensional analog of the cube. I don't know if anybody ever read Wrinkle in Time because she talked about Tesseracts there. It's a bit too much to get into, but the point is that the space in which we shall live our life with Christ is now like this one. It won't necessarily be three-dimensional. It is multi-tiered space of love, infinite in its scope and one in which Christ fills all where we will see God face to face. So studies in mineral crystallography taken together with the words of scripture have served to inform my knowledge of God and stimulate my imagination for the many years now. The third thing I will mention that has brought Christ and gemology together for me brings me back to the subject of blood. And this has to do with the gemstone set into the breastplate of the high priest who served in the tabernacle. Our Hebrew author, and Jen Wilkins, talks a lot about blood, and they should. Blood symbolically represents life. The life of the creature is in the blood, it is written in Leviticus. God made man in his image and gave us life. When man spills the blood of the innocent, 
the blood cries out to him. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. And we know from Psalm 106 that even the land is polluted by the shedding of blood of the innocent. So we know if we watch any of our news reports, today, this very moment, somewhere, the blood of people made in the image of God is being spilled, and we can be sure God is watching and listening. God knew from the beginning that something different would be needed to impress upon humans that they needed to reverence life and the one who gave it. So he made a covenant, a covenant for two parties. God's first covenant involved having Abraham prepare sacrifices whereby three animals and two birds were split in two and separated. God passed through the space between the pieces, but Abraham did not. The point was that the blood was a witness that this was a unilateral covenant. It was all on God's side. God's covenant with the people made through Moses was also a covenant made with blood. It was a covenant of the superior to the inferior. But God knew the people would fail to keep up their end, which was one of obedience. So when Moses read the law of God's covenant to all the people, with all its obligations of blessings for obedience and curses for failure, and the people actually said they agreed, God knew better. He had Moses sprinkle blood on the scroll of the law that had just been read, on the twelve stone pillars that represented the twelve tribes of Israel, and then on all the people. He did this with hyssop the twigs of a wild shrub, and scarlet wool that was dipped in the blood of goats. The scarlet wool had been dyed by tiny insects called cochineal that were squished for the very purpose of yielding its body to produce the color of scarlet. So this, too, was a picture of sacrifice. As for the tabernacle, when it came time for purifying it, Moses sprinkled it with blood with its entirety in its entirety. He sprinkled the tent, all the fabrics and furnishings, and all the wooden and metal vessels. And here's where the gemology comes in again. The fine ephod of the high priest, it was a bit like an apron, was covered, uh, joined by gold loops, with the breastplate of the high priest that was wore all year round while serving the Lord in the tabernacle with its many sacrifices. It was called the breastplate of righteousness. The sacred garments he wore were part of what was called the golden garments. The breastplate had the 12 gemstones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel again, and was always worn when the high priest communicated with God when he offered Uh, the gifts and sacrifices for sins. Undoubtedly, Moses would have sprinkled this too when it was worn by Aaron. And with all the blood sacrifices, these gems would have incurred some staining of blood, even though the high priest often removed these garments for certain ceremonial washings. The point is that everything and everyone needed to be purified with blood. And as for the gems and the people they represent, John tells us in Revelation that the same gemstones, now representing the twelve apostles, make a reappearance in the holy city, in the new Jerusalem, as foundation stones. So for me, that tells me the future looks good for all of us living stones. I had done a little 
overview of the tabernacle, but that would put us here too long. So I will skip ahead and just say where I landed at the end was to make the point that in Herod's temple, the one when Jesus was here, um, there was no longer any Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And from what I can tell, he wasn't even particularly careful to make the Holy of Holies a cube, things that represented things in the, in the first tabernacle and temple. The point, I think, is that in the same way that God was in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, he was not in Herod's temple. Instead, God, in the person of Jesus, was walking the earth and only visited the temple. In fact, he cleansed the temple outwardly by expelling the merchants and money changers. And then he went on to purify the people inwardly by shedding his blood for them on the cross. So how does the author of Hebrews explain the what, why, and how of that? He wrote that Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. The words not made by man were actually Jesus's and are found in Mark 14.58. In Matthew 27.51, it is written that when Jesus was crucified, the curtain that was at the entrance of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, giving access to all who would follow him there spiritually because he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence as our great high priest. So the perfect cubic holy of holies was a shadow, a symbol of heaven itself. And when Christ died, entrance to it was torn wide open. Christ entered not with the blood of sacrificial animals, but with his own blood, the perfect sacrifice, dying once for all so that we may live and ushering in a new covenant of love a better covenant than law. The Jewish Christians who heard these words would have had a clear picture of what that looked like because during the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, carrying the sacrifices for the sins of the people, the people waited anxiously for him to come out again so they could know that God had accepted the sacrifices. Jesus' death was a public one, as that was. And his coming out was his resurrection. And the Hebrews author says he will appear a second time, that time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That day will be the consummation in all its glorious fullness of the salvation purchased for us on the cross. And to this we say, come Lord Jesus. So if we... As we've seen, the copies of the heavenly things were purified with the blood sacrifices. Now we see that Jesus Christ purifies us all with his own blood. And this is where the word conscience comes in. This accomplished work of Christ is meant to be applied subjectively to our conscience, a redemptive work that removes sin's defilement from the very core of our being and fits us for service to the living Lord. The whole understanding of sanctification is that it should be progressive, subjective, moral improvement. Peter in 1, Peter advises that this actual sacrifice of Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God and pictured in Revelation in the throne of heaven, as if it had been slain, had been foreordained 
before the foundation of the world. It was not a new plan. The formula for all of God's covenants is that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's even back in Exodus as well as Revelation and other places. But because the Mosaic Covenant of the Law lacked the human ability to keep the covenant obligations and animal sacrifices were inadequate to bring about spiritual renewal in the people, Jesus self-consciously inaugurated a new covenant and transformed the Passover feast of the old into the holy communion of the new. The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost spelled the end to self-defeating legalism, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today does it still. The new covenant in Jesus' blood acts as a will. A will requires that a death takes place in order for inheritance to follow. The eternal inheritance mentioned in verse 14 refers not only to our inheritance, but also to the promises given to the Old Testament saints. So this covenant, this will, illustrates that it is initiated by God in both its formulation and ratification. Christ, God's Son, is the better sacrifice because his moral perfection and his obedience to the particular will of God. Jesus Christ will come a second time to lead us to glory. At the Lord's table, we eat the bread of grace and symbolically drink, that is, take into our bodies the blood of Christ until we drink the wine of glory with him when he comes again. In fact, our very bodies become temples of the living Christ as the Holy Spirit works out our sanctification. That's talked about in 1 Corinthians 6. And because Christ has broken through the limitations of time and space on our behalf, we know we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence, assured that our prayers are both heard and honored. We join our Lord there with praise and adoration. Paul in Ephesians 2.6 pictures believers as sitting in the heavenlies with Christ. And so must we. This is the promise of the better tabernacle. So let us pray. Lord, we want to always love and serve you. Help us not to fall asleep or ever be complacent about such a great salvation. Help us to make every effort to carve out a time for the priceless privilege of praying alongside you before the Father at the throne of grace. Amen.